day and welcome to the final episode of Branch Out for 2020. I can't believe it because we've covered a lot this year, from the bushfire recovery to battling a plant disease pandemic. We've also looked at plants that heal and ones that can kill too. And as promised, in today's episode, we're going out with a bang. That's right. Today, we're talking about plant sex. Yeah, it's real and it's happening all around us and it's not just up to the birds and the bees. You see, plants have honed a whole range of different reproduction processes over hundreds of millions of years. And they've come up with some pretty amazing methods of passing on their genes. We're going to hear about some of them and we'll also take a look at the scientific efforts to make sure some of our most endangered plants can keep getting it on for the survival of their species. I'm Vanessa Fuchs. And you're listening to Branch Out. Sometimes we use plants to help in our own romantic endeavours. I mean, what first date or apology would be complete without a bunch of flowers? And maybe there's a reason for that. You see, flowers hold the sexual organs of the plant they adorn. And flowering plants make up a huge part of our biosphere. So flowering plants are just absolutely everywhere. Uh, just to give some stats, uh, just in terms of number of species, nine out of 10 plants on land are flowering plants. So the other plants, such as the ferns, mosses, or conifers, they're uh, a minority on, on Earth. So, so flowering plants just numerically are very important also in terms of biomass. In most ecosystems, most of the, the plant biomass is made by flowering plants. So today they are basically they're the, the clue to everything, uh, all of biodiversity on Earth. That's Dr. Hervé Suke. He's a senior research scientist at the Australian Institute of Botanical Science, and he's based at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. I am mostly interested in, in, in the origin and the evolutionary history of flowering plants. Uh, basically from their beginning, at least uh, 140 million years ago to the present. So I'm particularly interested in how flowers have evolved uh, through this uh, entire time period. Hervé says flowering plants have always fascinated scientists, and that's for two reasons. First, because they're everywhere. But it's also because they haven't been everywhere for a very long time. So looking at the geological timescale, we know that there's uh, quite a few fossils appearing in the Cretaceous, but before the Cretaceous, there's nothing, nothing at all. So just to give you some numbers, the Cretaceous is a time period that is spanning approximately 140 to 60 million years ago. So that seems like a lot, but it's not a lot uh, compared to the history of life on Earth. Um, which dates uh, probably at least to 3.5 billion years ago. Land plants have only been on land uh, for, for about four, 400 to 500 million years ago. But still, that's a lot more than just the history of flowering plants. So what's, what's been fascinating people, and especially paleontologists, but, but everyone else as well, is the fact that they're so prevalent today, but haven't always been there. So while flowering plants now dominate the planet, 
they haven't been around all that long. But what is very clear is that they are incredibly effective. I mean, most of us would kill to have that kind of success. But how does their reproduction actually work? The whole point of flowers is actually to help with cross-fertilization. So one flower pollinating another, uh, preferably on another individual. And how this works is by the process of pollination, the transfer of the pollen grains from one flower to another flower. Okay, a teeny bit of terminology before we move on, in case, like me, you're not up to speed with your flower anatomy. So the male part of the flower is called the stamen. Then there's the thin stem called the filament, and on top sits the anther, which contains the pollen. And then you've got the female part, and this has got the carpal, the ovaries, the style, and the stigma. So specifically, the pollen grains usually will land on the stigmatic surface, which is at the top of the carpal. And from there, it will enter um, the carpal and eventually fertilize the ovary. And so that act of transfer, the pollination, can be helped by uh, insects collecting the pollen, either on purpose or inadvertently, or birds, bats, occasionally some rodents, or wind, or water. So many ways to transfer the pollen. So while they may not have been around for long, geologically speaking, the crowning jewels of flowering plants have developed a vast array of beautiful shapes, sizes and colours. And just like us, working on their appearance has helped them to keep their species alive. So those that are uh, animal pollinated, they, I don't think it's just a human perception that they're extraordinarily diverse and, and, and beautiful. Uh, it, it's also because these are visual cues for all of these animals. The visual cues are very different from one animal group to another. So we do know that there are some very specific relationships between colors and particular animal groups. Key example that we always refer to is red flowers are um, usually bird pollinated. There are exceptions, but uh, red flowers uh, attract birds uh, uh, primarily because birds love the red color. They see it very well, and so they go for them uh, very easily. Whereas yellow flowers tend to be more broadly pollinated, but in particular by bees. So there are all those rules about the colors. And um, yes, it's, it's extraordinary, this diversity. Uh, it's, you're not making it up, Vanessa. It's, it's out there. We see it. It's not just a visual diversity that sets flowers apart. There's some really incredible facts about them that make them special in the plant world. The first one that is most important is that these are bisexual reproductive units. So most of flowers actually have female and male organs in the same place. Yep. So technically, flowers are bi. When you look into the stunning display of a blooming lily, you're seeing both the male and female organs, the stamen and the carpal all together. But if you're starting to wonder about the wisdom of that, you've got good reason. So you might ask, why, why in the world would plants put together male and female beds if it's just such a high risk uh, for, uh, for themselves? Uh, and, 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 you know, we know it's not a good idea to, to go marry your sister or your cousin. Uh, we know what happens next. We know that having a wide gene pool is necessary for the health of any species on Earth. So the opposite of that would be one organism reproducing with itself. So then why do flowers take that risk? 
of having their male and female parts so close together? Well, the answer there, as always, is evolution. Turns out the benefits of putting male and female organs so close together outweigh the risk. If you're an animal and you're looking at visual cues to go to one organ, you are less likely to adapt to two different kinds of images and go from one to the other and one to the other, etc. Especially in the right order. So you, you, you probably would have to go to the male one first and then go to the female for it to work. So what plants are doing is they're doing just one, one kind of unit that the insect or the other animal has to go to. And they're attracting it by many ways, by visual cues, by scents, by heat occasionally. They produce rewards and the animal only has to learn to go that, to that one thing again and again. And every time it goes, it takes the pollen from one uh, flower to um, the carpels of the other flower. Man, how amazing are flowers? No wonder they're so successful. They've developed astonishing and ingenious ways to make sure they keep on keeping on. But maybe none more so than the unique orchid. Coming up after the break, flowers with some even weirder tricks up their petals. To make sure our botanic gardens across Sydney remain places of outstanding horticultural beauty and we keep our scientific institutions at the forefront of research, we need a strong, supportive community to advocate and support our vital work protecting our plants and our future. The aim of the Botanic Gardens is to prevent the extinction of not only our native plants, but the amazing animals which rely on them, including you and me. And your donation will help scientists and horticulturists at our Botanic Gardens work on real solutions to help ensure our plant life can withstand a changing climate. Just head to the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney's website and look for the donate button to learn more. Well, what are maybe some of your other uh, favourite species? Whatever your perspective is on what favourite yeah. means. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, some of the really cool, like in orchids, like I said, you've got so much diversity and they've, a lot of them have co-evolved with a particular pollinator. So the pollination mechanisms are really varied. I'm Gavin Phillips and I'm the seed bank officer for the Royal Botanic Gardens. I'm based at the Australian Plant Bank at the Australian Botanic Garden, Mount Annan. Gavin's work for the gardens is really important. But we'll get to that in a moment. He was just about to tell us some of the truly mind-blowing ways orchids reproduce. Some of the really cool ones that I, I know of and that I've seen um, are things like uh, Keeloglottis, so a little ground orchid we get here in New South Wales and along eastern Australia. Um, they uh, require a thinning wasp, which is a small little wasp, and they have a, a part of the flower that's modified to look like the female. And what happens is those flowers actually are what we call sexually deceptive. So they produce a sex pheromone that mimics the pheromone that the female wasp would produce. And it makes the male come. And then he actually tries to copulate with the flower, which makes the flower parts move and deposit the pollen on the male. And then obviously he doesn't manage to do what he's come to do. So he flies off to another flower to try and repeat and thus spreads the pollen around. How amazing is that? Flowers evolving to look like female wasps and even producing wasp pheromones. 
The orchid's wily ways don't stop there. If you're looking for a dead-set, astounding pollination method, look no further than the Corianthus, or the bucket orchid. They have a, a flower that's shaped like a bucket, and the top of the bucket produces this sticky nectar that the bees like, and they come, and it's very slippery as well, so it forces them to, like, they, they fall down into the bucket. You might think that's the end for the insect, drowning in a bucket of nectar. But no, there's a little bee-sized ledge, like little steps out of a swimming pool. It saves them, and it leads them to a tunnel, again, perfectly bee-sized. Then the insect crawls through the tunnel, almost to freedom, but just at the last minute, the tunnel constricts, trapping the bee and squeezing a small amount of adhesive on its back. The orchid pollen, also in the tunnel, then sticks to the glue. And once it sets, the tunnel relaxes, setting the bee free to carry the pollen to another flower. So the pollination mechanisms that they've come up with, like these you know, sexually deceptive or they lure the insects in, uh, they're, they're really fascinating. But despite these ingenious methods of reproduction, there are unfortunately so many orchid species that are endangered. And that's where Gavin comes in. In that role, my, my main focus is collecting seeds from plants uh, all across New South Wales with a particular focus on threatened species. Uh, so that means I go out all across the state um, looking at uh, how plants grow and reproduce in order to collect seeds to bring back to the plant bank to for research and long-term conservation storage. It's an incredibly painstaking process because first... There's the timing. So we have to show up when they're actually flowering and if they're not going to open, we might have to manually open the flower to do it because we don't want them to self-pollinate because we want the genetic diversity in the collection. Then there's actually finding the flowers. Looking through literally like down on your hands and knees sometimes or right down under bushes and, you know, moving leaf litter and stuff out of the road for some things. And then there's finding the right flowers to ensure a healthy, diverse population. Once Gavin's done all that, then the hard work actually starts. So removing the pollen from the flower, the pollen's sticky, and then we can take that pollen to another flower and we can deposit it using the toothpick onto the stigma of the next flower in order to pollinate that. Um, after we've done that cross-pollination between you know, several plants, we would then typically, we have a, depending on the plant, we might bag them uh, using fine mesh bags, sometimes tea bags, uh, and support that bag so it doesn't get wet and weigh the stem down. Sometimes in some areas, like down in the Alps, we've done ones where we've caged them because the biggest threat is that they get chewed by wallabies or various other animals. So we protect the plant once we've done the hand pollination because that can be quite time consuming you spend a day just hand pollinating a few plants sometimes so you don't really want them to subsequently then become breakfast collecting orchid seeds and hand pollinating them is such a huge job for such a little plant one of the threatened orchid species gavin focuses on is the midge orchid maybe you can guess from the name it ain't big you're looking at flowers that are only uh, a few mil across um, and it looks like a tiny little, uh, if you can imagine a hairy tongue hanging down with two bull's horns sticking up out the top of it. 
Um, that's essentially what the flowers look like, but they're, they're tiny, tiny, and you'll get like half a dozen or so on a little spike, and the whole plant might be like 10 centimetres tall, so they grow down among the shrubs. They're actually quite hard to find if you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah, the plants are tiny, and the flowers even tinier. But don't forget, Gavin's on the hunt for seeds. Yeah, so the seeds are minuscule they're literally like grains of dust um so they're only a few cells wide they have extremely small amount of matter in each seed hours and hours goes into gavin's labor and while collecting grains of dust in tiny tea bags might seem small it has a huge impact this precious material he collects allows scientists to use cutting-edge technology and more blood, sweat and tears to preserve these reproductive materials. That's coming up after the break. Preserving orchid reproduction for these endangered species is a tricky business, and tiny seeds are just the beginning. Basically, it's just the embryo, um, the little, you know, the heart of the little seed, and then it's got a seed coat on the on the outside, the tester. There's nothing else in there, so there's no there's no starch or food or energy supply in that little seed for it to to grow and to germinate. And so the only way that an orchid seed can actually grow out in the in the natural world is that it, it needs to be in the soil and come in contact with um, a, a, a fungus that it's going to be friends with. That's Dr Zoe Joy Newby, a scientific officer based at the Australian Botanic Garden Mount Annan. And this fungus the orchid seeds need to be friends with is called mycorrhizal fungi. And that fungus infects that little, that tiny little orchid seed and then actually starts to um, push nutrients in towards the seed and, and basically feed that little seed. Um, and that allows the seed to germinate and grow. Now, eventually, most orchids grow up and they're able to gather their own nutrients, ditching their dependence on the mycorrhizal fungi. But for some, it's a lifelong partnership. But there are lots of examples of orchids out there around the world that are called what we what we call mycoheterotrophic, or that is they are dependent on mycorrhizal fungi for the entirety of their life. So they never produce their own energy. They never acquire their own nutrients and, and um, you know, the, the things that they need to grow uh, in, in the way of carbon, the only way that they can get it is through a lifelong interaction with, with a fungus. So for these orchid species that need their fungi friends their whole life, what does that mean for scientists like Zoe Joy who are trying to preserve and propagate them? Well, not only do they have to preserve the seeds themselves, but also the fungus to make sure they can coexist in the future. There's a lot involved in that process, and it begins with the seeds and the soil Gavin's collected from the wild. So basically we're in the lab, we're going to get a little petri dish, we're going to pop some of our soil inside of that petri dish and wet it up so it's nice and moist, and then we get a, a piece of paper and pop that on top of, of the soil in the petri dish and then sprinkle the seeds across the top. Now if the mycorrhizal fungi is in fact present in that soil, it makes its way through the soil up to the seeds and, and then infects the seeds. But it's not until weeks or even months later that Zoe Joy knows for sure whether the fungi has successfully infected the seeds and the shoots sprout. And then eventually that shoot tip will hopefully get big enough and start to turn green. And that's, that's a perfect sign that, yep, there was definitely mycorrhizal fungi in that soil sample and that it's now in our seeds. 
So once we've got that little green seedling, we take it to the tissue culture lab. The tissue culture lab is probably my favourite part of the Australian plant bank at the Australian Botanic Garden, Mount Annan. It's like a friendly version of Professor Snape's office. Heaps of jars stacked on well-lit shelves that have all these different kinds of green shoots growing inside of them on this jelly-like substance at the bottom. It's super sterile inside, so before any material ends up in there, all contaminating material has to be removed. And then again, we just do some waiting and hopefully what we'll see is little strands of, of fungi growing out of that piece of tissue, out of our little seedling. And then we can cut little pieces out uh, and hopefully produce a pure culture. And so what we end up with is a, a, an agar plate that has a nice, clean, uh, single isolate of, of fungi that um, is, hopefully, is hopefully a mycorrhizal fungi that we can then use to, to germinate our seeds. The process is staggeringly meticulous, but it's all worth it when Zoe Joy and Gavin collect viable seeds, produce perfect seedlings and successfully isolate fungi for storage. Inside the Australian plant bank, the material can remain there happily, awaiting to be used for other vital research or translocation to help restore habitats. But it's something of a sad duty that orchids require this help with their reproduction and survival. So orchids are sometimes referred to as canaries of an ecosystem. Uh, and I guess that's because they're, they're, they have uh, relationships and networks and connections with uh, fungal organisms in the soil and with the insect pollinators and the pollinators uh, around them. And so if, if the environment in which they live starts to change, it can affect those relationships. We have to keep an eye on these tiny and curious plants not just for their beauty, but also for the change they signify. You see, flowers and pollination overall are vital to our survival. Uh, they are supporting most of the food chains on Earth as well. So without flowering plants, uh, you and I, Vanessa and everyone else, uh, would not be alive today. Uh, we drink, we eat flowering plants, we, we, we dress with flowering plants, we have tables made of flowering plants. Some, some of us smoke flowering plants. Flowering plants are absolutely um, the entire uh, source of all, all, all of human industry. Thanks for listening to Branch Out and a huge thank you to our amazing lineup of incredibly passionate and knowledgeable guests who featured in today's episode. If you like today's show, please hit subscribe and give Branch Out five stars and a positive review. Now, it's not only the last episode of the year, that was also my last episode for now. My husband and I are looking forward to welcoming our first child early next year, so I'll be taking some time off in 2021 with our little girl. Presenting and producing Branch Out over the last two and a half years has been probably one of the most exciting and rewarding things I've done both professionally and personally. It's, it's so cliche, but it's been honestly a dream come true. So thank you all for coming on this amazing journey with me to discover the surprising world of plants. I look forward to coming back, but in the meantime, stay tuned for some different but equally exciting Branch Out content and have a safe and Merry Christmas. I'm Vanessa Fuchs and Dan Butler produced this episode of Branch Out.